0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, November the 16th, 2022. It is currently 6.59 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where currently outside, it is cold, it's like 46 degrees. Winter has arrived. We're all going to die and it's 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 like light rain and maybe I don't know if heavier rain is on its way, but it it's a light it's cold, it's rainy, it's dark, it's it's snow. So so I decided uh that we could never have church again because it's too cold outside. 46 degrees, we shut everything down, we cancel. Okay, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but no, we're, we, I am here this evening. I'm not behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church. We had people out, and so we're going to be live streaming tonight, and hopefully this will prove to be beneficial. Now, the only problem is, if you missed the last live broadcast, you're so far behind, it's not even funny. You know, we continue our discussion on the proper distinction between law and gospel. I'll get you all caught up. I'm going to make sure you, you uh, definitely understand what we're talking about, and hopefully this will be beneficial, all right? So here's, here's what happened. Earlier this afternoon, I was reviewing another sermon from a conference on law and gospel. We have found much in the conference that we agree with. We have found much in the conference that we are somewhat perplexed and confused by. But every time I read things about law and gospel, I get confused because on one hand, Those who offer up a proper distinction between law and gospel seem to have certain things down so well. They understand the law condemns that we are sinners, that we can never keep the law, and that our only hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ and in the the imputed righteousness of Christ. And then it seems without fail, they turn around and basically say, hey, even though that's all true, you can do it. You can keep the law. You can say no to sin and you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. And then I don't even need to know a proper distinction between law and gospel. Why do I even know, need the distinction, right? If I can now keep the law, I don't even need the gospel now, right? That, that would just be something you need to hear before you're saved. And once you're saved, you just need law, 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 because you now have the magical ability to keep it, keep it, keep it, keep it. But 2,000 years of church history demonstrates that we don't. And if you don't need church, if you don't want to read church history, here's, here's a novel idea. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. Get close to the speaker. Get really close. Right. Here's what I need you to do. Go find a mirror and look in that mirror. You see that person in the mirror. They are a sinner and they sin all the time. I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me. We are sinners that is just the reality. So sometimes when I hear these lectures on law and gospel or read something, like, like 90% of it, I'm like, oh, I agree. I agree. This is so good. This is so wonderful. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, what just happened? What just happened? You you just threw out all, all you spent three hours giving me this great distinction between law and gospel. And then basically without... Trying to say it, you're telling me you don't need to worry about the gospel because now you can keep the law. <laughs> no, I'm always going to need the gospel because I'm never going to keep the law. I don't have supernatural magical powers to do so. And Krishna will say, well, it's not about supernatural magical powers. Oh, you obviously believe it's supernatural because you now believe I have some God-given ability to keep the law. And if I do, then I don't need the gospel. And then you turn around and say, but you won't always keep it. Well, if I have a God-given ability, why won't I keep it? Can you explain it? It's maddening to me. It's absolutely maddening to me. But in our review of this sermon from a conference on law and gospel, we made it 20, about 22 minutes into it, about 23 minutes into the sermon. There wasn't a lot of things. We we, we ended up kind of just talking about lots of different subjects. But when he finally got to the subject of law and gospel, and we really started focusing in on it, he mentioned a very important concept or a very important phrase. That phrase is duplex gratia. Duplex gratia, which is a Latin phrase that means double grace. Double grace. Now you can learn about this by picking up Calvin's Institutes and reading Calvin's Institutes, and you'll learn about Double Grace. However, I'm, I am aware that most people will never pick up Calvin's Institutes. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Most people will never pick up Calvin's Institutes. They're not going to read them. So I'm going to do a little bit of reading from Calvin's Institutes so that you at least have a kind of a working knowledge, a working idea of what Calvin believed in regards to duplex duplex gratia. And then we need to try to figure out how does this concept of duplex gratia, how does it fit in with the distinction between law and gospel? Now, members of Victory Baptist Church, if you are listening this evening, you want to write down somewhere in your notes duplex gratia, and you want to at least summarize the basic meaning of it. That's where on Sunday, when I mention it, Y'all won't be looking around like, you never taught us this. You've never mentioned this. You can say, oh, he mentioned it Wednesday night. All right. Duplex gratia. Please write it down. Okay. I will be checking on Sunday. There will be a test. Whoever whoever can give the proper definition of duplex gratia will win $5 million. Okay. I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, I will just say that you, you got it right, okay? So for everyone else, are you ready? Here we go. I know I'm going to get an email. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I know the definition of duplex gratia, and I didn't even need your podcast to know it. So do I get the money? Okay, well, if if you can get the money, you can get the money. Okay, all right. Are you ready? Here we go. Having a little bit of fun on a Wednesday evening when you're dealing with some very serious theological issues, it's okay to have a little bit of fun so it's not all just dry and academic. I mean, we're talking about very important issues so we can have fun, have some excitement, and get the most out of this. Are you ready? Here we go. I'm going to be reading from the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin. If I, if, if I called it something else, I, I think I said the Institutes of the Christian Religion. But if I called it something else, I have no idea why. But I have been trying to get people to read the Institutes of the Christian Religion at my church for basically ever. Um, I think we have, I think we have multiple copies in the church library. I know we have all of Calvin's commentaries. Uh, in the church library, um, and I've tried, and I what I've, and, and to be fair, what I've actually tried to do is just get people to read the first, like I think three chapters, four chapters, is what I always give as a like a, a homework assignment, because of it, it's very important, the very important concept of we will never understand ourselves as we truly are until we see God as He truly is. That concept is is very much laid out in Calvin's Institutes at the beginning of it, and I just think it's it's beautifully written and and well said. But here, duplex gratia. That's the goal tonight. I know what you're saying. Wait a minute. In the last broadcast, you stopped at the 23-minute mark. You got to get back to the sermon review. Well, I, the ser- if, the sermon, if all the sermon review gives us is duplex gratia, then even if we don't get back to the rest of it, that, that's fine because we have to talk about this and make sure we understand this. It will be interesting. And in fact, you can email me and, or those in the Discord channel can say something. I wonder which who is on team duplex gratia and the, and who is on team no duplex gratia. Who's on the pro duplex gratia team and who's on the against duplex gratia team? Because I think a lot of Christians whether they they may have never heard the the Latin phrase, they may have never, never heard of the idea of double grace, but I think most Christians operate in the duplex gratia mindset and I I'm just going to tell you that I am becoming more and more and more and more and more against the concept, more and more opposed to it. But are you ready? Here we go. Calvin's Institutes. Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of him we principally receive a double grace. There's duplex gratia. So Christ was given to us by God's generosity to be grasped and possessed by us in faith. By partaking of him, we principally receive a double grace. Now, according to Calvin, that when you receive Christ, you receive a double grace, a double grace. And 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 I, I think some of you may go. I don't know if we receive a double grace. You you may not have ever used the term. You may never have thought about the term. But I will argue that whether you you know it or not, you probably believe in some way in a double grace, even if you don't call it that. See this this is very important, right? And and those of, of Victory Baptist Church, you know what I'm about to say. So many times we believe things. We carry it. We hold on to an idea. We defend an idea. We we will say that the idea is right. But in many cases, when and sometimes it just irritates me when someone wants to start arguing. You almost want to look at them and go, "What's the origin of that idea you hold to?" What's the and they'll say, "The Bible. It's the Bible." I'm like, "Oh, really? So Christians throughout church history have believed what? Well, I don't know about that. Well, where did that come from? I don't know that. Okay, but you're still going to argue. Okay, all right." But in many cases, people hold to a double grace idea and would not even understand or know what Calvin had to say about the concept. Now, yes, it is important. Is this concept biblical or is it just the concept given to us by Calvin? All right, duplex gratia. Here we go. A double grace. Now, he's going to explain these two graces. Namely, that being reconciled to God through faith, or through Christ's blamelessness let me read this again namely that being reconciled to God through Christ's blamelessness we may have in heaven instead of a judge a gracious father so because we've been we've been reconciled to God through Christ we now don't have a, we don't have a judge in heaven we have a gracious father in other words, that's that's the first grace, being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, being declared righteous. That that's justification. So in other words, the first grace is the grace found in justification, where God is no longer my judge, he is my father, I am forgiven, I'm declared righteous. That is the first grace in duplex gratia. That's the first grace in this double grace concept. In justification now, hopefully everyone would say amen to that. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, for God's glory alone, It justified by faith, justified by grace. We should all agree with that, not by works, not by anything we can do. We cannot boast. So where does the second grace, where does the double grace come in? Well, he goes on to say, secondly, that sanctified by Christ's spirit, we may cultivate blamelessness, and purity of life. So the first sanctification, or the first grace is in justification. But after we are justified, we receive a double grace, a second grace, and that now we can live, in practical terms, a life of blamelessness and purity. Now, if we take that to its logical conclusion, that preach is good. And Christians love to hear that. Right now that we are in Christ, we can be blameless. We can be pure. Amen. We're not like those ungodly heathen. We're not like the pagans. We are godly. We are holy. Look at them. Look at their music. Look at their dress. Look at their movies. Look at them. Look at them. Look at them. They're all messed up. But we, because of a double grace, we're blameless and we're pure. Sounds good, but if we take it to a logical conclusion, therefore, you should be able to, because it's a work of God's double grace. We should be then without sin. That would have to be the logical conclusion. And if you're like, no, 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 no. We won't be without sin. Okay, we won't. So we're going to be, we're going to be sinning, but we're going to be blameless. We're going to be sinning, but we're going to be pure. Now, are you talking in my position? Are you saying practically? How can you say on one hand, God's grace is sufficient and effective for justification? It actually occurs. I'm actually declared just before God. But when that, when God's grace now works in sanctification, I can't be holy. I can't be perfect. I can't be without sin. That seems like, uh, that God's grace is not sufficient. This raises serious questions. does, does, Does Calvin offer any more explanation? He says, of renewal. Indeed, the second of these gifts, I have said what seems sufficient. The theme of justification was therefore more lightly touched upon because it was more to the point to understand first how little devoid of good works is the faith through which alone we obtain free righteousness by the mercy of God. And what is the nature of the good works of the saints with which part of the of the question is concerned? Therefore, we must now discuss the, the these matters thoroughly, and we must discuss them to bear in mind that this is the main axis on which religion turns, so that we devote the greater attention and care to it. For unless you first of all grasp that what your relationship to God is and the nature of his judgment concerning you you have neither a foundation on which to establish your salvation nor one which to build piety towards god but but the need to know this will better appear from the knowledge itself all right so so um okay i there there's more here i could there's more here but i i can't go into everything so the idea is that there is a grace and justification. We all understand. The question is: Is there a grace in sanctification? Is there a grace in sanctification? And 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 Christians are just like we're programmed. It's like it's like it, it's it's we when you became a Christian, you went to sleep and they put a computer chip in your brain, and you're just you you will automatically know what to answer. No 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 no. I'm a Christian now. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I can stop sinning. I can do this. I can be godly. I can be holy. I can do this. I can love God. I can love neighbors. I can, I can, I can, I will, I will, I must, I must, I must, I must. Now, either one, you start living your, your life in complete denial where you're pretending or not denial and complete delusion. You, You become so deluded that you think that you're doing it when everyone knows that you're not. And maybe at some point you finally realize it. But what you typically do is you don't realize it. You live in delusion and you become self-righteous, arrogant, spiritually condemning because you think you're better than you actually are. Or one day you look in the mirror and go, who is that? And then you realize it's you. And then you're like, wait a minute, this Christianity doesn't work. And you become disillusioned, discouraged, despondent, depressed, and possibly begin to deconstruct. I question this second grace concept. Th- that and, and I know Christians get upset with me because they're like, "So, Joe, so you're telling me you're te- look like I don't have to tell you. Don't your argument's not with me. The argument is with the reality in your life. Don't argue with me. Look at your life. Now, if you are convinced." And, and you know what? I'm going to give you the three scripture tests. Do you love the Lord, that God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? You're going to tell me if you're even halfway honest. No, you may even say it's impossible. Well, wait a minute. I thought you've been given an ability. I thought you've been set free from the power of sin. You should be able to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Be holy as God is holy. If you're even halfway honest, you're going to say, I can't do that. Exactly. But if you've been given a second grace that supposedly can make you blameless and pure, why can't you do those things? So then you'll say, okay, well, okay, I can't do that. But then you'll still try to hold on to what you can do. My point is for everything you say you can do, what's the point of, oh, look, I can supposedly stop this sin. You've got 75 going on. So what, what, oh, look, he's given me the grace to overcome this one sin. Well, you're committing 74 others and you're going to take some great pride or victory that you stop that one sin when you're committing 74 continually. Well, I don't commit that sin anymore. Woohoo! Victory. You're still in, a, in a, a perpetual state of sin. How do we not real? We, we'll focus on the one. I've got to stop this sin. I've got to stop this sin. This sin is horrible. I've got to stop this sin. Well, what about all the others? So we create a, a a list of mortal and venial sin. The double grace, the duplex gratia. I, don't, I have a hard time with it. Look, there's no argument about grace and justification unless we're going to go to Roman Catholicism in some way, shape, or form. And then they would redefine what that means. But if we truly believe we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, because Christ alone, we all understand that grace. I just don't know what grace shows up in my life in sanctification. Now, I understand if you go with a monergistic sanctification, then it's all on God anyway. And if it's all on God... Then you don't. I mean, then, then it's God's fault when you're not sanctified, and there's no way to get around that. You say, no, no, no. You take responsibility. Not if it's not if it's monergistic. If it's monergistic sanctification, God is fully responsible for it all. So in our in this sermon that we are reviewing, they've kind of just introduced the concept of duplex gratia. And he, and I've backed it up just a little bit, but he's going to basically, he's getting ready to tell you, he's getting ready to once again mention that basically now that because you're in Christ, you have the power to say yes to God and no to sin. And that just, it just, it just flows right off the tongue, right? It just rolls right off the tongue. We don't even have to think about it. The dominion of sin has been broken. I'm now free. I can say yes to God. I can say no to sin. And everybody in the congregation will say amen. They will clap. Whoa, you preach it, brother. You tell the truth. And then everyone goes home and sins. And nobody's like, wait a minute. So we just sat in church saying amen that the power of sin has been broken. We can now say yes to God and no to sin. And we, and I, and before you even get home, You've already yelling at the kids in the backseat of the car. You're probably gossiping or slandering someone in church. You're probably complaining about the pastor and you start fighting with your wife and you get frustrated and irritated. And that's from the, that's from the pew to your couch. Oh, but, but, but at the same time you were sitting in the pew going, amen, I now have the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. And then by the time you get home, you've already committed 30 sins before you even get home. Now, you, how can a Christian not, that doesn't compute in their mind. I'm saying that I'm free from sin while well, I keep sinning. You, it's some psychological phenomenon that I am not familiar with. It is something bizarre to me. And they'll be like, and then and immediately it's like, no, 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 you're misunderstanding. I'm not misunderstanding. Either I've been given a double grace and I am now free and I can stop sinning or even though I've been saved by grace and justified freely because of the righteousness of Christ, yet I'm a sinner and sin will be, I stress, will be, I stress, will be the normal experience of every Christian. And most Christians don't want to hear that. That, that, that blows up everything in their mind because the way Christians think about salvation is, no, I am saved so I can stop sinning. I am saved so I can live a godly life. I think that the, the way we need it, we, I am saved because I can't live a godly life. I won't live a godly life. And I'm always going to sin in some way, shape or form. Yes, you can create a list of 10 or 15 big sins that you can try to stop. But I, I'm telling you, why do you feel so great that you're, let's say, you stop drinking and you're no longer getting drunk? Well, congratulations, you're no longer sinning with drunkenness. What about the 50 other sins are you're committing? It's so weird how it's like as long as as long as I'm not committing the sins on this list, then I'm somehow vic and I'm a more than a conqueror and I'm overcomer and I whoa 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 what about all the others it's some weird game so duplex gratia is the idea there's a second grace that shows up in sanctification let's see how he talks about it let's get back to the sermon review uh, it doesn't pack the seats Uh, And so if you have a pastor, if you're here,
1: you do have two pastors. And if you're at a different church and you have a pastor that will tell you about the Lord Jesus as a Christian, so that you can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. I mean, how
0: happy can you be? See, if you have a pastor who will tell you about Christ, so you can, you, you can say no to sin. And yes to righteousness. Now, if you can do that, if you can say no to sin and yes to righteousness and yes to Christ, look, look, don't, the argument is not with me. Just take that to its logical conclusion. That means you can be sinless. You can't say, you can say no to sin and yes to righteousness and then turn around and say, but you can't be perfect. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. If I can say no to sin, that means I can stop sinning forever. I can. I possess the ability. And how do I get that ability? Duplex gratia, the second grace given to me in sanctification. It's, I, I just, I don't understand How we can't, like, that doesn't make any sense. Let's see what he's going to do with it.
1: Right, I think to myself, I've got many faults, but I don't want my fault to be. I don't tell the people about the Lord Jesus Christ for them and Christ in them. Right, I think it was Spurgeon who said, if you have somebody come over and you feed them a steak, this this will be embellished. This is not Spurgeon, but you have like a a two-inch cut filet like cooked maybe one minute on each side just so it's nice and bloody, good. And if I gave you one of those steaks, if you liked it like that, and then I accidentally stubbed your toe, you're like, who cares? I'm getting the best. By the way, I also love to eat fillets because I think the richest person in the world can't eat anything better than I'm eating right now. Like, what are the poor people doing today? I'm having a fillet. Except they're now $50 each from the grocery store. Michael Horton said, start with Christ, and you get sanctification in the bargain. Begin with Christ and move on to something else, and you lose both. So by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but in basketball, when you pass to someone, you're not supposed to look at the person you pass to. We call that what, when you look at the person and then pass. You what the pass? Telegraph the pass. I want to look at you and pass over here so I can be like Pete Maravich or Magic Johnson or who's the Sacramento King guy, the white chocolate dude? Jason, Jason Williams, that's right. You watch that guy? Yes. So I look at you and I throw the ball over here. But preachers are doing this. They're looking right at you and throwing you the pass. Here's what they're doing on Sunday. Of course they have the duties of reading the word and administering the sacraments and preaching. But when they're preaching, they're showing you what to do when you're the dad leading the dinner table worship. They're showing you what to do when you're the mom and you've got the kids around because dad's at work and you're teaching them the Bible. You're thinking, oh, I love to sit under Christ-centered preaching. I love it that they're telling me both the law and the gospel. I love it that they're, they're showing me that the law as a Christian is not something to condemn me and accuse me and demand of me perfection. That's all taken care of in Christ, but it's guiding me. It's for, for, for the glory of Christ and the Father and the Son and also for my own good. What they're doing in the pulpit, they're modeling for you so that you do it at home. So when you teach VBS classes, when you teach a Sunday school class, when you have a home Bible study, whatever you do in your teaching, guess what? It's Christ for
0: pardon and Christ for power. And you say, yeah, well, there we go. It's Christ for pardon and it's Christ for power. Now, in his mind, the law no longer condemns us as a Christian because the law was taken care of in Christ. I do understand that. But then he turns around and basically, he, he what he's basically saying, the reason the law no longer condemns us is because we now have the power to keep it. That's where, my, that's where my divergence with this is. I don't believe as a Christian you now have the power to keep the law. Because if you do, I, I just challenge you, keep, I'll just give you three commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be ye holy. God is holy. You will not accomplish that one time in the next seven days. You will fall short continually in your thoughts and your words and your deeds and your actions. Inwardly, externally, you're going to fall short. But see, it's like you, you, Christ is there, will, will give you power. It's the power concept. It's the power concept. I'm going to back that up one more time. Here we go. Listen to it. Teach a Sunday school class when you have a home
1: Bible study. Whatever you do in your teaching, guess what? It's Christ for pardon and Christ
0: for power. Christ for pardon, Christ for power. See, Christ is there to pardon you, but he's there to empower you. Well, if God is empowering you... It better be perfection or or God's power is insufficient. Are you saying the power of God is insufficient to get a sinner to be able to keep the law of God? If God is the one empowering you, then it has to be all sufficient, right? It's the omnipotent power of God. If the power of God is in you, to help you overcome sin, your only conclusion can be is that we will be sinless. Oh, Unless, and what we typically try to say, well, the power's there, but we don't want to use the power. Why doesn't his power overcome our unwillingness to use the power? Look, look, I don't get this. We say things like this and nobody raises, where are the people who can raise their hand and go, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying you no longer sin. Well, no, I'm saying I sin and you sin. Well, but I thought we had the power. Well, we do have the power, but we're not we don't have the power to be sinless. So we don't have the power to be sinless. We just have the power to supposedly sin less. And the way we know we sin less is by focusing on specific sins and ignoring all the rest. And then somehow we convince ourselves that we're doing something great because we ignore all the sins that we do commit. Like it's such a game. It's like like the whole thing is is a fraud. The whole thing is a facade. The whole thing is like play, like little kids playing house. It's it's a joke. It makes no sense to me. That nobody can go. Wait a, what are we? What are we? What are you saying? Well, you've got the power now. Oh, I got the power. But yeah, but the power is limited. What? Let, let let's see where he goes with
1: this. And you say, yeah, but my particular atomistic text is not talking about Jesus right now. Well, if I had room behind me, then back up. I remember once I was at Grace Church, I was sitting in the front row and there was a baptisms. And uh, one of the people that I knew was getting baptized, so I wanted to sit in the front to show my support. And so they got baptized. And then there was a guest preacher that day and it was Spiros Zodiades. Remember that name? Sounds Greek to me, but what do I know? Anyway, he almost fell in the baptismal pool while he was preaching. I was in front row, and I thought, well, I have lifeguarding experience when I was younger, and I thought I'm going to have to rescue this guy at the baptismal pool. This is going to be amazing. What does it have to do with anything? Nothing. But I'm just trying to keep you awake at Saturday morning. Come on. But seriously, when pastors are preaching, you think, well, I don't know how to lead a home Bible study. I don't know how to do family worship. Oh. Pastor, he's in Second Samuel 1, and the next week he's in Second Samuel 2, and I think I'm just going to open up the book of Exodus, and I'll read to my family Exodus 1, and then Pastor talks about, well, is there sin involved, and who's the sin bearer, and why do we have any hope, and who Jesus is, and what happens in Exodus 3 and Jesus. So I think I'll do the same thing. And then the next week, Pastor does Second Samuel chapter 2, and so then the next time we have family devotions, I'll do Exodus 2. They are throwing you the past. They're telegraphing you the past. And so I want to make sure that you don't just f- default to this curriculum of the VBS that is essentially just do better when you're teaching. Thomas Brooks said look upon thy justification and write this motto. It is the fruit of free grace. Look upon thy strength with to withstand temptations and write this is the fruit of
0: free grace. Look upon see The fruit of free grace is now the power to resist temptation. Logical conclusion, you should never sin. How how do we say these words? Like This is why I believe the church has demonstrated through almost 2,000 years that we're completely ill-prepared to deal with the reality of sin. We don't know what to do. We condemn it. We gossip and slander. We excommunicate, but we don't know how to deal with it. Or we just overlook it. We don't know how to deal with it because our, everything that we say seems to indicate that there should be no sin, but we, we, but then we'll back up and say, well, well, no one's going to be perfect. Well, we keep selling everyone. It's like, it's like, it's like uh, here, I have a bottle here of water, right? A bottle of Dasani. And it's like I'm standing on the street corner like, ladies and gentlemen, this bottle right here, this will cure all diseases. This will ensure that you will be physically healthy for the rest of your life. All of your sicknesses will be gone. Just buy this for $19.99. And people start lining up going, this is going to take care of all of my diseases. Yes, but but make sure you read the fine print. Well, you still will get sick. You will still die and you'll never be perfectly healthy. Well, wait a minute. You just said that it's going to take care of everything. I know that, but that's just what, that's just how we sell it. Well, that's what Christianity does. Come to Christ. You're declared perfectly righteous. All your sins are gone. And wait, there's more. You get power. Now you can keep the law. Now you can say no to sin. Now you can say yes to God. But wait, just know that you you can't be perfect and you're still going to sin. Like, how do you reconcile those two concepts?
1: Upon divine power to conquer corruptions
0: and right. This is the fruit of free grace. See, the divine power to to overcome, to conquer the, the corrupt desires. And it's supposedly free grace. See, free grace saves you, but free grace gives you power. That's the duplex gratia. That's the concept. You get this extra grace. Now you have power. It, the grace there is almost d- identified as a power. And that, so in other words, You get grace and justification. You're just declared righteous and and pure and holy because of God's righteousness. But somehow in sanctification, grace now becomes power. It now becomes ability. Now you possess a power and ability to do something. But anyone who's just rational will go, well, wait a minute. Then I should be able to stop sinning. I don't know how you don't just... I don't know how you just don't come unwound trying to, trying to deal with the doublespeak within Christianity. I'm going to back all of that up. Go back a little bit more. Here we go.
1: Be amazing. What does it have to do with anything?
0: Nothing, but I'm just trying to keep you awake
1: at Saturday morning. Come on. But seriously, when pastors are preaching, you think, well, I don't know how to lead a home Bible study. I don't know how to do family worship. Oh, pastor he's in 2 Samuel 1 and the next week he's in 2 Samuel 2 and I think I'm just going to open up the book of Exodus and I'll read to my family Exodus 1 and then pastor talks about well is there sin involved and who's the sin bearer and why do we have any hope and who Jesus is and what happens in Exodus 3 and Jesus so I think I'll do the same thing and then the next week pastor does 2 Samuel chapter 2 and so then the next time we have family devotions I'll do Exodus 2 they are throwing you the past they're telegraphing you the past And so I want to make sure that you don't just default to this curriculum of the VBS that is essentially just do better when you're teaching. Thomas Brooks said, Look upon thy justification and write this motto, it is the fruit of free grace. Look upon thy strength to withstand temptations and write, this is the fruit of free grace. Look upon divine power to conquer corruptions and write, this is the fruit of free grace. Say, Lord, I, I'm struggling with a certain sin. I need your help because I've tried and I've failed and I've had all kinds of things that I've done. And would you help me? Would you graciously help me? What do you think he'd say? And so that's how we approach these problems.
0: I'm- okay, so then it's simple. God, uh, I sin. I keep sinning. I would like to stop sinning. I have just was told that you'll provide the power for me to stop sinning. So... Uh, It is November the 16th, 2022. I then hope and pray and beg that November the 17th, 2022, I will no longer sin and I'll be perfectly righteous and perfectly holy practically. I mean, what, what would God say? I mean, is that not asking something according to God's will, right? Right? Come on, everyone, pray, pray that you, that God will give you now the help to stop sinning. And people say, well, that's ridiculous. He won't give you the power to stop sinning completely, but he'll supposedly give me the power to stop sinning over one sin. So he'll help me over one sin, but he won't help me with the 5,000 others. So, so, so he'll give me the power to stop this sin, but not that sin, that sin, that sin, that. No, he'll help me one at a time. So if I really go through it really, 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 really fast, this sin, this sin, this, and I just name all of why, why won't I just name all of them and I'll just, he'll just help me with all of No, he only does it one at a time. What in the world are you talking about? Either he, he, he gives us the ability to stop sinning or he doesn't. What is this just like hedge your bet kind of thing? Hey, hey, you well, I mean, what do you think Jesus is going to say? Of course he's going to help you. You know how many people sitting in there, if they take it seriously, will try to, will believe that, and then after they keep sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning, will come to the end of themselves and say, I, I, I'm not saved, Christianity is a lie. Or they'll just convince themselves that they're more godly and more holy and more righteous than they are, and they become the typical self-righteous, condemning, arrogant, backstabbing, gossiping Christian that it dominates so much of Christianity because we have to convince ourselves that we're something that we're not. We just run around with our fig leaves, run around in our robes of self-righteousness because we got to pretend. We got to pretend that God gives me the power to overcome. Sin. I got to pretend why pretend everyone, you know, everyone knows the game is up, man. Everyone knows you, you dropped your fig leaves way back there. Six months ago, everyone has seen you've been exposed. Everyone sees it. Your kids know it. Your wife knows it. Your, your, your coworkers know it, but he's sitting there just telling everyone, Hey, I mean, you just ask God to help you. Just say, God, I've been trying to fight, overcome this sin. And, just, I can't do it. You And then boom, boom, ba It's magic, ladies and gentlemen. It goes away.
1: I'm all for, I, I, I need to be disciplined. And like I said yesterday, the language of farming and soldiering and warfare in the scriptures. But as I prayed earlier, Jesus had said with me, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Lord, help me. And of course, if he's The father giving you the son, giving you the best, giving you the most wonderful gift. Won't he give you the other gifts? So
0: it's Christ for pardon and Christ for power. Why don't you? So he gives you complete pardon. Then he's going to give you complete power. And if you have complete power, what's the logical conclusion, class? Sinless perfection is the logical conclusion. Well, why is it that nobody accomplishes that? Why is it that we sin and we sin and we sin and we sin? Why can't anyone deal with that reality? You would think in some ways that when I speak, that I'm speaking like some foreign language that the Christian church has never witnessed before. But the reality is, and I'm just speaking the words of reality that we all know. So why, why can't we, why can't we deal with that reality?
1: Turn to Romans 6, please. We looked at verse 11 last time, and I'm just going to read this whole section so you can see our union with Christ and see the doctrine of sanctification from Paul's eyes as he instructs you, dear Christian, about the freedom you have from sin's domination because of Christ in you, duplex gratia, Christ not just for you, but Christ in you. Because of union with Christ, we all have sins that haunt us. And I think too often we're ready for the how-tos. So We want to get to chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15 of Romans. I love those chapters as well. But he's developing this idea of union with Christ, and he's wanting us to think through. So I'm just going to read verses 1 and following as Paul talks about the doctrine of sanctification. And I want you to see how not many words There are that say Christ or Jesus, but I want you to see the connection of sanctification with the life of Christ because it's not just Jesus for you when you're saved, but He's in you via the Holy Spirit when you're saved. What shall we say then? Verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? By no means. Who has King James here? Anybody? Oh, come on. At least one. Yes, one. Thank you. What's it say? Certainly not, or God forbid. What kind of accent is that, by the way? California, okay, good. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Pomona, I don't know. Thank you. Certainly not, may it never be. It's, it's as strong as it can be, because he's been talking about free grace, right? He's been talking about chapter 3, 4, and 5, uh, about the grace of, of God and justification, and you think, okay, if in fact it's true that God uh, has... Uh, the Son has paid for all my sins, past, present, and future. Doesn't that mean that I could just do whatever I want? I'm not going to lose my salvation, right? And if you're, if you're a works kind of person and you think your sanctification is going to determine your justification and your entrance into heaven, you'd never ask this question. Roman Catholics don't ask this question because you get a better work harder. You'd never say, should we continue in sin that grace might abound? You'd never say that because you would know the answer is no, because I'm never going to make it to heaven if, if, grace, if, if sin abounds. But it's a logical question. Did not Martin Lloyd-Jones say, this is the question that must be asked by everyone to whom you preach the gospel, or else you haven't preached the gospel freely enough? Verse 2 goes on. How can we who died to sin still live in it? By the way, let's say there's just some special thing that you're just struggling with, and it's unique to you, and you just can't get over it. This is... This is going to be your passage that you need to study. I would like you to read this
0: passage every day for 30 days. Say- oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Okay, so so here we here. Oh, boy. All right. Now, I do like Martin, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you don't preach the gospel freely enough... Uh, then uh, uh, if you preach the gospel freely enough you 're going to be asked this question so you 're saying we can just continue to sin whenever someone when any so, when someone gets upset with me and say you 're just saying that we can continue to sin then i 'm like okay i 've preached the gospel good enough but what 's bizarre i 've had people say you 're saying we can just continue to sin and then accuse me of not preaching the gospel, which is the most mind boggling thing i 've ever heard in my life, but i won 't go into all that sometimes i 'm just like, what in the world?" Sometimes when people argue with me, I don't even know what they're talking. I'm like, what are you? No, the reason you're asking the question that uh, that I could possibly be saying, can we just sin any way we want? The reason you're asking that question is because I've properly preached the gospel because the gospel properly preached leads to that question. Please see the book of Romans. All right, but so what he's going to, and please note how this is worded. If you're struggling with one sin, see if there's that one sin you're struggling with, That is the most, I can't stand when people do that. Because what that seems to imply is, oh, here's one sin. Well, what about the thousands of others? We always get focused on one, this one sin. So all the others are just good to go. All the others are just good to go. You're good to go. Do you love God? Well, I mean, I can't do that. I can't love God that way. But is that not a sin? I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this one sin. So if I can help you with the one sin, you're good with these other sins? Well, no, I can overcome this sin, but I can never love God with all my heart, mind, body. And so why do you keep undermining that the reality of that sin to focus on this one? So we get preoccupied with the one because we think if we can have victory over that one, then because that one is different than the others. No, no, we are continually in sin. I I don't understand this idea that I'm struggling with this sin. Oh, really? That's the only sin you're struggling with? Have you loved God today with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? Well, no. Okay, well, then why are you focusing on that sin and not that sin? Well, this sin is a big one. That's not a big one. Be holy as God is holy. Well, I mean, basically what I, what you'll hear, I can't do those. So, so the ones you can't do, you just don't worry about and you focus on the ones supposedly you can stop doing. So I can stop this sin, but I can't do that one. Well, how do you, like Christians, sometimes it's just the most bizarre thing. Like those, those I can't, I, I can't do those. So I'm just not going to, but this sin I can stop. Well, why can you stop that one and not the other? Well, like I don't understand. It's just, it's, I'm telling you, when I hear Christians talk about sin, sometimes I'm just like, I don't even understand. I don't even understand what's going on anymore. So now he's going to turn Romans six is, see, this is the key. Just read Romans six every day for 30 days and dun, 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 you have victory over one sin, one sin. Ladies and gentlemen, we've gotten victory over one sin, not all the other sins, but we can get victory over one, over one over, we'll just, just one. Okay, Let, let's see how he's going to go with this. All right, so I want you to, if you have a problem with that one, that one sin, not all the others, but the one that you read this for 30 days. Here we go. Same
1: Bible, start to ask yourself the question, what about this? What about that? Find resources. Just dive into this section on sanctification. Verse three, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father that we too
0: might walk in newness of life now do we walk in newness of life practically positionally positionally i no longer live in sin positionally i walk in newness of life but practically if you say this is practical, then you're almost going to have to call for the eradication of the old nature. And if the old nature is not eradicated, then sin lives in you. <laughs> it's literally inside. So how can you be walking in newness of life if the sin nature is still in you? Like that's just like right there. You just got to even think about that. If the sin, if, if you are in Christ, right? You're in Christ. And we walk in newness of life, right? Which is typically the baptismal formula, buried with him in the likeness of his death, raised with him to walk in the newness of life. And everybody's like, amen. And the person gets out of the baptismal, I'm going to walk in newness of life. And they sin before they get home. (sighs) What a a new life. I mean, isn't that an amazing new life? That you have been buried with him in his death, raised with him in, in, in his resurrection, so that you can walk a new life where you have a same sin nature that you had before your salvation. Before conversion, you had a sinful nature, and you have the exact same sin nature after your conversion. But we're like, no, 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 no. Now I can walk a new life. Now people are going, like, but no one ever said it was perfection. Well, then it's not new. Or are you or you're just saying new means less sin? I'm just going to sin less. I'm not going to be sinless. I'm just going to sin less. But how do you calculate sinning less? You're going to look for specific behaviors, right? Okay, I used to do this, but I don't do this. I, I used to do this, but I don't do this. But you're still going to be sinning continually, right? You're not going to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You're not going to love your neighbor as yourself. You're not going to be holy as God is is holy. So you're still going to be sinning continually. So how do you reconcile that I'm walking in newness of life when you're sinning continually?
1: For if we have been united with him in a death like his, you see the tie in here. It's all union language. We certainly will be be united with him in a resurrection like his Verse six. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin.
0: For we- now that's, that's, that's where the rub is. That's where the controversy is. It has the, has the sin nature been basically been put to death. And if you say it has been put to death, well, then now you can be sinless. You can't say on one hand, it's been put to death, but on the other hand, to say well, you're still going to sin. Why am I sinning if the sin nature is gone?
1: One who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will be. We will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And now here's this key that we looked at yesterday. First imperative, I think in the book of Romans, if I'm not mistaken. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. I want you to think about that verse. I want you to do
0: all right. So, so you just consider yourself dead to sin. you just You convince yourself, I am dead to sin, I'm alive to God. I am dead to sin, I'm alive to God. I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. I tell myself that 50 times a day, and I still sin. But, before God in my position, I am dead to sin and alive to God. In my position, this is absolute truth. In my position, I'm not a sinner. In my position, I'm holy. In my position, I'm dead to sin. In my position, I'm alive to God. In my position, I am perfect. But if you translate this, that this is something you have to do in your life, you can try all day to convince yourself, I'm dead to sin, and so therefore I'm going to stop sinning. It's like me going to a basketball court every day and going, I can slam dunk the ball. I can slam dunk the ball. I can slam dunk the ball. I can't do it. I'm five six and I don't have that leaping ability. I don't have the ability to do so. I, I can I can sit there, I I I can lift four hundred pounds. I can't. Now what? Uh, Unless you believe, well, no, you're actually are dead to sin. You're actually, the, the old nature is gone. You're actually dead to sin. You actually are. You just got to acknowledge the reality. Well, if I'm actually dead to sin, then the sin nature is gone. So why do we keep sinning? And if the sin nature is gone, then, but then logical conclusion, then we can be without sin. Like you, you can't Christians just talk themselves into weird circles. And so what we do is we just find a way to, we just say enough and stop and never bother to ask the rest of the questions, which would be like, uh, wait, I, there's a problem here.
1: Do that verse. I want you to obey that verse to think and to consider and to mull and to meditate and to muse over this idea. I am no longer a slave to sin. If I was a charismatic, I might do a little dance up here. I'm like, I, I'm no longer
0: a slave. What? Okay. You you do that. Do your dance. Jump around. Hop a couple of pews. Right. Run around. Drink some Gatorade. Whatever you need to do. You're you're free from sin. You're dead to sin. Yeah. Think it. Believe it. You're still gonna. sin. You're still going to sin. You, the only way for that to be true practically, it would require the eradication of the old nature.
1: It was the first question I asked you last night. If somebody came up to you, a homosexual, and said, I'm enslaved to sexual sin. I can't stop. I know I'm going to go to hell when I die. Must I stop sinning in order to come to Christ? What would you tell them? It's a tricky question. It has like a little scorpion tail at the end, and you want to say the answer right away, but it's like the Octoartic Creed, right with the marrow controversy, you know, must you forsake sin in order to come to Christ? That's what it is. So what would you tell him? Could you say flee immorality? Could you say, I'm glad you're convicted? But dear friends, God saves people that are enslaved to sin. Abraham wasn't saved because he stopped sinning. Nobody's saved because they stopped sinning. There's nothing antecedent or before faith because Jesus comes to save the ungodly. Abraham, David, you go through the list in ourselves, we are saved not because we stopped sinning. Once we're saved, well, then, of course, there's the sanctifying process that God is doing in our lives and we're going to respond. But we used to be enslaved to sin. There was nothing we could do about it. He's quickened us. He's regenerated us. And now, as Christians, we are not slaves to sin.
0: Okay, so then we can stop sinning. (laughs) Like, I don't understand. You can't say you are no longer a slave to sin practically, but you can't be perfect. If I can't be perfect, that means there's something keeping me from sinless perfection. What could it be? What could be keeping me from sinless perfection? Sin! If sin is keeping me from sinless perfection, then I'm a slave to it because it's keeping me from perfection. If I can't get to perfection, I'm still a slave! Look, I may have a longer chain, but I'm still, I'm still connected to the master, which is sin. He's saying, no, 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 the chain has been set free. Then I can be perfect. Well, no, no, you can't be perfect. Then I'm still chained to the master, which would be sin because sin is keeping, is pulling the chain.
1: You say, yes, but I keep going back to those same patterns. I want you to begin to think over and over and over. I must consider that I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. What's that mean, and how does it flesh that itself out in in my life? Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your immortal body to make you obey its passions. He already talked about this death before. Why do we have to obey that anymore? Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. As those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness.
0: Let me say it this way the Christian life is the impossible, impossible task of living out practically what is true positionally. Positionally, I am dead to sin, positionally, I'm alive to God positionally I'm a new creature in Christ. Positionally, the old is gone and all is new. That's all true positionally. In practice, I am to now try to live that out in practice. But it is impossible. I will never accomplish it. But based off the positional reality, I am motivated, hopefully, because of that positional reality, which is only there by faith, by grace, not by works, then I seek to live out. I seek to live it out. But it's never going to be perfect in any pretending that it is, any pretending that 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 positional reality makes me free practically is just insanity. The positional reality of my freedom and death to sin is not a practical reality because the sinful nature remains in me. And as long as the sinful nature remains in me, then I'm not free. As long as you say, I cannot be perfect, then then I'm still a slave.
1: For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law as first use, right? We're still under God's law to guide us, but under first use, condemning, accusing, demanding. No, no, we're not under that, but we're under grace. So our default is when we're trying to solve a problem. Okay, I need to be kinder to my wife, whatever it is. Somebody wants to stop looking at pornography. Our problem, if we're not careful, and this is my point in this first session, it's just going to be law. And I just don't want you to think law only.
0: And I agree that we almost always turn to law. I got to do better. I got to try harder. I got to do better. I got to stop this. I got to stop this. I'm sinning. I got to stop this. I got to stop this. I got to stop this. And I got to stop this. Your solution is just tell yourself that you're free from sin, dead to sin, and now you have the power to do it. Well, you can say that's not law, but it, it to me, it leads to even more condemnation because you're telling me I now have the complete and utter power to not do it. That would, to me, lead to more condemnation.
1: But our default is always law. Last year I preached 1 Corinthians 6 when I was here Sunday night, almost a year ago. And how does Paul deal with sexual sin? He says, don't be deceived. These kind of people do not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, flee sexual immorality. Be like Joseph. Run. And he also says, glorify God with your body. He commands. He gives law. Is law good? Oh, I hope so because it reflects God's nature and character and holiness and justice and righteousness. But we're not law alone people because it's Christ for pardon and it's Christ for power. And so when I look up things, I think Fonville was the one that uh, showed me originally. How do you get over sexual sin? Here's a list of things. X block thing, have accountability, I don't know, take cold showers, all the things that they said to do. And then you have another list, how to overcome sexual sin. Same kind of list. Another one, how to overcome sexual sin. Same kind of list. And then the kicker was, the first one was from the Mormon church, the second one was from the Buddhist, and the third one was from your evangelical pastor. And not any of them had anything to do with Christ. What does Paul do? He starts off in chapters 1, 2, and 3. We have no righteousness, and you need a righteousness that God righteously requires, and we don't have it. And then he moves to chapter 3. But God, thankfully, He gives a righteousness because Jesus has earned righteousness to unrighteous people by acquitting them in the doctrine of justification. Then He moves to chapter six and seven, where we call this the sanctification section. Right? If I was going to do, if I was going to do Hebrew uh, Romans, I might say chapters one, two, and three a sin, three b four and five. uh, uh, Salvation. Six and seven, sanctification. Eight, security. Isn't it fun to be a Baptist? Nine to 11, sovereignty. Twelve to 15, service. And then chapter 16, stuff. (laughs) Salutations. (laughs) This is the sanctification section. And my point is simple. Notice how much the Lord Jesus Christ has talked about and union with Him when it comes to saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. I don't care if you have a list, but lists aren't going to be enough because they're simply law only and sanctification is not by nomism our law. I'll tell you what is, by, what is by law only is frustration, depression. Or thinking you can actually do it because you take god 's law and you make
0: it law light ninety six calories now i agree, see I agree with him that when we look to the law for sanctification, right we either end up frustrated depressed discouraged, despondent deconstructing, De- I mean, it's just, it's defeated. It's it's just, it's everything bad. Or we, we lower the standard till we convince ourselves that we do so, which leads to self-righteousness and arrogance and pride. I agree, but what his solution is, see, you can't look to the law to do it, but you look to Christ to do it because Christ will give you the power to do it. So in his thing is, you can't do it by the law, but you look to Christ, now you get the power... To do it So in a roundabout way He still brings you back to the law Because he's saying You can do it You have the power And I'm saying No I can't I'm going to fall short
1: And you go I think I can do that I do that No no We want to make sure That when we're dealing with issues Or we're helping other people Someone calls you and says I'm having a problem with gossip What do I do? What do you tell them? Well, I was just at a conference and of course you're not to do something, you fool. You're supposed to think something. Uh, Romans chapter 6 verse 11. No, no. Remember, we want to be nice.
0: But then we want to tell the truth. And our- so, so the solution is just listen. Here's yourself. So- you're struggling with gossip. Re- reckon yourself. Consider yourself dead to sin. And if you'll consider yourself dead to sin, then you'll stop sinning, so you'll stop gossiping. That is ludicrous. That is ridiculous. It... You convince, I'm telling you, you I, I want you to set an alarm on your mobile device that every hour you say, I am dead to sin and I'm alive to God. I am, I'm reckoning myself dead to sin and alive to God. I'm every hour say it and then tell me if all of a sudden magically you just stop sinning and your sinful desires go away. It's inside of you. The monster is inside of you. The serial killer is inside the house. You can say, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin. And the serial killer is inside the house going, you may think you are, but I'm very much alive in here.
1: Our focus needs to be back on who Jesus is. Paul knew, I'm going to Corinth, but I don't even going to tell you what you want to hear because I know what you need to hear. And that's the language of 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2. I determined. I deliberately knew ahead of time. When I get there, I know what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about the Lord Jesus. It's kind of like what I do when I'm speaking. They asked me to come talk about law and gospel. I'm just here to talk about Jesus. You ask me to come talk about sexual purity. I'm here to talk about Jesus. You ask me to talk about eschatology. I'm here to talk about Jesus. It just it makes it easy. You just default that. But this is not what this is we don't do this. This is not our default. Our default is law. And it's easier to do Bible studies on law. And it's easier to preach on law because it's built in our systems. So that's why we need someone that has beautiful feet to come give us the gospel. What's your name, sir? Johnny Cash? Daniel, okay. You know what? You seem like a nice fellow and you've been agreeing and tracking with me and it's encouraging for me to look at you when I'm teaching because it's like, yes, Daniel's paying attention. But your feet kind of... I don't know about your feet. They're looking pretty weird. (laughs) Oh, no, he just moved him in.
0: I ruined his day.
1: (laughs) Because all of our feet are weird. And then you look at Isaiah 52 and Romans chapter 10 about when you bring the gospel and you have good
0: news from the Lord Jesus, not just Christ for us, but Christ in us. I would love to stand in the parking lot after this and go, okay, guys, so how, how does it work again? How, how do you stop sinning? How, how does this work? How, how? Oh, oh, you got power to stop sinning. So you can stop sinning? Oh, okay. All right. That's what your takeaway is. Okay, well, come see me in about uh, three weeks when you realize that you keep sinning and you keep sinning. and No matter how many times you told yourself you were dead to it. Yeah, because I, 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 don't, I, I don't understand, like, what's the good news in this? The good news is supposedly, I guess the good news is I've got the, I've been, I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God, and now I have the power to do it. The good news is I can now keep the law. That's not good news, ladies and gentlemen. Feet look beautiful.
1: And of course, if you look back in those days with all the sandals and the dirt and the muck and the mire and what they had to walk in. I'm just trying to reinforce 50 times over that when you want to evangelize someone, yes, you give them the law to show them their sins so that they need a Savior, and then you present the grace of the triune God, and you call them to believe. But in sanctification, it's not any different except the law doesn't condemn, the law guides, and so we now give the law to guide people, but we still give them the reason to to, to obey Friends, and I've learned this from other people, how do you get somewhere with your GPS? I mean, when I was growing up in Los Angeles, it was Thomas Brothers Guide map. Anybody like 400 pages, and this page doesn't go with that page. And I'm like, what am I doing? So now I just type in West Sacramento, Santa Cruz. I typed it in, and it said 2 hours and 15 minutes, and then it went to 2 hours and 45, then 2 hours and 50, then 3.15 But the GPS didn't get me there. The V6 did. GPS can tell you nothing. Here's what GPS tells you. Turn around. You idiot. (laughs) Turn left. Turn right. Stay on course. It's like the law. It accuses or excuses only. But it doesn't get you there. The law to guide us tells us. And it tells us, yes, do this. Don't do that. We need the engine, the motivation to get us there. And so the engine, of course, is the grace of the triune
0: God, as we see it, especially in in the incarnate Christ. Now, if you see the double grace is just a motivation that now we're motivated because of God's grace, because of God's mercy, we're now motivated to want to do right, I can agree with that, that as a Christian, there is a motivation. There is a desire to love God and to pursue. We want to not sin. Now, if you just leave it there now, but if you say that that double grace is more than a motivation, it's the power and the ability to actually do it. That would require the eradication of the old nature. And it would call for not only the possibility, but the probability, the likelihood of perfect Christians, that he would love me,
1: that he would die for me. I used to fly from Omaha to Los Angeles because I lived in Los Angeles but from, was from Omaha, and my mother would say to me in 1985, who's picking you up from the airport? And i say, I don't really have anybody to pick me up from the airport. I have to get a cab or something. And she started to cry. And I said, Mom, what's wrong? And she said, you know, there's like 10 billion people in Los Angeles and you don't know one well enough to pick you up from LAX. And, and now I am known by the God of the universe. He loves me. God loves me. I think sometimes we're afraid to talk about that because Joe Osteen says too much about that. So now we're afraid not to. Right In our circles, no smiling from the pulpit because Joe Osteen smiles. No talking about love because Joe Osteen talks about love, right? I know you're smiling. I know you're getting kind of red because I'm too close to you. (laughs) (laughs) I got the GPS. It tells me where to go. Yes, good job. By the way, uh, on a side note, I think I always need to have a man's voice for the GPS because I kind of think if a woman's telling me what to do, I might have my patriarchal roots
0: messed up. (sighs) I do appreciate the the humor. I do because I, I like to use humor, too, and it breaks it up. I understand. But there's a part of me that just gets very irritated with this. Because I'm tired of the jokes at this point. Because you're not giving me the answer. You're telling me that all I have to do is tell myself that I'm dead to sin. And I can stop sinning because Christ is not just the pardon. He's the power. Now I have the power to do it. But you've not explained one time how that works. And two, you've not explained why we continue to sin over and over and over and over and over and over and over over again. The best you've been able to tell me is, well, if I think this way, I can stop gossiping, supposedly. But that doesn't mean that. But, but what does it mean about the other 927 billion sins that I'm committing? So I, I want end, I do appreciate the humor. I understand you do it in preaching, and I usually keep people alert. I understand. But, man, give me an answer here. <laughs> <laughs> the engine, the
1: motivation for the Christian life, how does the Christian sustain obedience? It has to be the
0: Lord Jesus Christ. See, see okay, so we sustain obedience because of Christ. Sustained obedience. Oh, well, 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 you're getting really close to, per- sustained obedience is getting very, 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 very close to perfectionism. And how do we do it? Christ. Well, okay. Well, then if Christ is the one who sustains obedience, then why would he not just sustain it perfectly? Can someone explain this to me? I'm not asking for much.
1: Turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, this is kind of Jerry Bridges' famous um, directive as, he, as he, he pushes us here all the time. I said the verse the other day, uh, but I'll, I'll say it again. Galatians, of course, Paul is excoriating some of the Galatians. And, of course, we could talk a little bit about being bewitched, and you start off with Christ, and then you go by the law. But I just want you to see the tense here in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, present tense, in the flesh, present tense, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose.
0: Right, The life I live is in Christ Jesus by faith. And that's how I am righteous. That is how I am holy. That is how I walk a new life. It is in faith because of my position.
1: And of course, that last verse, when people say they can be good to get to heaven, then I usually say, well, then why would God the Father ever send the Son and do that to the Son at Calvary? But the point here now is faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Michael Horton said, Paul says that the gospel is the answer not only to our guilt and condemnation, but to our corruption and to slavery and sin. So I just looked at the clock and boy, the time is going by.
0: And if Christ is the answer to our corruption and slavery to sin then it has to either be because of his imputed righteousness by faith. But if you say Christ is the answer to our corruption and our enslavement to sin in a practical way, then you're saying, I'm no. then he removes the corruption. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Therefore, I can live a sinless life. You can't, it's either sinlessness or it's sin. You can't have this weird, like, you're free. You have power. But you can't be perfect. It's just so, how, how do we, I don't understand, I don't understand.
1: We started at nine, right? Okay, a few more minutes, we'll take a break. So Christ for pardon, Christ for power. Christ in us, Christ for us. That is the duplex gratia, and that is for evangelism, that is um, uh, good for parenting, good for all the things we talked about yesterday. Listen to what Horton goes on to say. As strange as it sounds to say that God pronounces the wicked just, it is even stranger to imagine that we need most for sanctification is more proclamation of God's free grace in Christ. I'm going to say that again. It is even stranger to imagine that we need most for sanctification. What we need most is more proclamation of God's free grace in Christ. Perhaps guilt can be assuaged by the preaching of grace, but now that we are justified, don't we need directions for practical living? Indeed we do. It is always the case that we need God's law to direct us. However, it is dangerous to assume that the law can empower us in sanctification any more than in justification.
0: The law cannot empower us. I completely agree. But your solution, it continues to seem to come back to the law won't empower me, but Christ will empower me. Now I can obey. Now I can do these things well, then I should be able to do them perfect. The problem is you create a scenario where sin shouldn't even, we don't even know how to compute sin in the life of a believer because it shouldn't be there. The problem is it has been there, will be there, always there. Look at the church for 2,000 years. It's sin, 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 unless you pretend that you're not. And every time we pretend that we're not, the next thing you know, some Christian leader is a part of a Hulu documentary because clearly all the supposed holiness in their life, well, it all came crumbling down. Right, I mean, how many times have we seen that story?
1: Now, I know this church loves hymns, and so do I. One of my favorite hymns that teach this truth is Augustus' Top Lady. And what song do you think I'm thinking of when it comes to double grace? Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed O be of sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Christ in us, Christ for us. I mean, it's in our hymnody where we're thinking about, yes, it's not just Jesus to get me into heaven. Scott Clark said, We dare not treat justification as a free gift that is based entirely on Christ's person and work in the gospel and treat sanctification as something that is based on our person and work. Christ for pardon, Christ for power. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. The double benefit of Jesus. Have you forgotten, dear Christian, that sin's power was broken when Jesus died for you? I like when Calvin said, Christ cannot be divided into pieces because you receive all his gifts, not just for justification, but sanctification. Jay Packer, and then we're going to take a break. We can correct willingness of view as to what Christian commitment involves by stressing the need for constant meditation on the four Gospels over and above the rest of our Bible reading. What about the epistles? What about the book of Revelation? For gospel study enables us both to keep our Lord in clear view and to hold before our minds the relational frame of discipleship to Him. Some Christians prefer the epistles as if this were a mark of growing up spiritually. But really this attitude is a very bad sign, Packer said, suggesting that we are more interested in theological notions than in fellowship with the Lord Jesus in person. We should think rather of the theology of the epistles as preparing us to understand better the discipleship relationship with Christ that is set forth in the Gospels. And we should never let ourselves forget that the four Gospels are, as often and rightly have been said, the most wonderful books on earth. Now, let's say you disagree with Piker. (laughs) I used to fish for Northern Pike in uh, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Does that count? Maybe you disagree with him a little bit, but you can agree that the 89 chapters of the gospel should be read regularly, can't you? And you read about Jesus with the leper, and you read about Jesus and the woman who's got the issue of blood, and you read about Jairus' daughter and all that. And so what I try to do every day is I try to read my Bible and then I have a section where I like to read something in the Gospels. And
0: So um, so the solution is a reading plan? The, the reading plan is... why You've already said that sanctification is monergistic. Why do I need a reading plan? God's going to do it. And why do I need the reading plan when supposedly the power of sin has been destroyed? I've been freed from it. I'm dead to sin. And now I can just follow God. Why do I need a reading plan?
1: Then when I'm getting dressed, I usually have on the ESV Bible app that reads to me, and for a week I'll just have John 7 to 10 read uh, while I'm getting ready, and all of a sudden I'm getting this larger flow of what's going on, and I go, oh, I finally get it, duh, John chapter 9, the man born blind, remember? I mean, it's sad and full of comedy and satire and all that stuff, and you read it and you're like, "Oh." Who is for this young man? Parents? No. Society? No. Sadducees, Pharisees, leaders? No, no, no. Nobody's for this person. Who will help him? Who will shepherd him? Who will guide him? Nobody's for him. And then you go, oh, I just had a dumb moment. John chapter 10 follows John chapter 9. Wow, that's deep, Mike. Aren't you glad you didn't pay for the conference? John 10 follows John 9. There is a good shepherd and this is directly on the, on the heels of the man born blind. What does he need? He needs a good shepherd and guess who his good shepherd is? The man who gave him sight and the man who forgave him his sins. And he is a good shepherd. And this good shepherd, he's not like these hirelings that were just talked about in chapter 9. He's the kind of shepherd that lays down his life because that's what the Father sent him to do. And he'll not only lay down his life, but he'll take it up again at his own divine initiative because he's the eternal son. There's a good shepherd, his name's Jesus, who takes care of even people like that. And I go, yes! Eighty-nine chapters of Gospels for you to read, and the word Gospel means good news. And duplex gratis is, yes, you need Jesus to get you into heaven justified, but you also need the Son who's been sent by the Father. And now because the Son has ascended to heaven, He's given us the Spirit, the one like Him, that we can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And please, dear congregation, don't ever forget that if something's missing in your doctrine of sanctification, it must not be Jesus.
0: Amen? All right, we're going to. So it ends with you can say no to sin and yes to God without ever explaining why we keep sinning. Christ is our justification. Christ is our sanctification. I am sanctified in Christ Jesus in my position. In practice, I try to live out my positional sanctification with a practical sanctification that. I don't think is monergistic, because if it was, then God would be the one taking care of it, and I wouldn't have to do anything. But I'm called to put off, to put on, to do this, to study, to read, to memorize. I'm I'm given about 927,000 imperatives, a little bit of hyperbole, and what to do. But my sanctification is ultimately accomplished in my position. It's in the imputed righteousness of Christ. But you cannot tell people That you can now say no to sin and yes to God because that would imply sinless perfection. But Christians will say this constantly in sermons. You can say no to sin and yes to God, but you can't be perfect. That is ridiculous. That is insanity. That is the very, that is the very definition of saying something that's completely and utterly meaningless because you're contradicting yourself and it's useless. Don't tell me I can say no to sin, but I can't say no to sin perfectly. Don't say I can say yes to God, but I can't say yes to God perfectly. Because if I can't do it perfectly, then obviously there is a limit to what I can do. Therefore, I'm not completely free. What am I not free from? A sinful nature. Therefore, I'm still chained to that sinful nature, and I therefore will continue to sin no matter how many sins you think I can say no to. I can't say no to all of them, and I will little live my life literally in sin as a Christian, and to say anything otherwise is a denial of the reality. You know, I know, and Christianity is known for 2,000 years, yet the church can't seem to figure that out. And yeah, by the time I get to the end of this, you can hear my frustration. Because this is the very thing that leads people to the utter pit of despair. I can say no to sin. I'm trying. I I, I can do it. I I should be able to do it. I should be able to stop sinning. I should be able to. I've tried and I've tried. I should be able to. I should. Yeah, you keep telling yourself you can. You keep telling yourself that. And at some point, you're going to want to give up. Your hope is in the finished work of Christ. I don't know. I don't have anything else to say. You can email me. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. It's frustrating when it feels like all you can do in a sermon review is constantly point to the reality that the preacher who's preaching knows and everyone listening knows and that I know. When did reality become the thing that you have to point to when you're listening to a sermon. And hey, no, 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 reality. No, reality, no, reality, reality. I guess Christianity, for some, is the denial of reality, which is a very, 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 very weird thing Because all I ever hear Christians talk about is that people in the world deny reality and they want to be, they just want to be able to determine whatever they want, no matter how unreal it is that they can just change their identity. They can change their gender. They just deny reality. Well, Christians have made an art of denying reality by claiming something that is supposedly true practically that is not true practically and yet claim that it's true when everyone knows it's not true. That's a problem. Yeah, that's probably going to get me in trouble. All right, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Do not in any way, shape, or form say that I'm saying sin is okay, that sin is right. I'm saying sin is a reality that's going to be in your life and my life. We should fight against it and and, and strive against it. But the reality is we're going to continue to do it, and we don't have the power to just say no to it because if we did, we could be perfect. And clearly, I've yet to find a sinless Christian. Thanks for listening. God bless.